My major pain has, has been invisible. The mobility aid makes it better. It gives me freedom. It can get to the core beliefs we have about ourselves. Don't ever think you're alone. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Douglas, who is a Chinese medicine practitioner, sex therapist, and soon-to-be licensed mental health therapist. Douglas has two major pains, Crohn's disease and DVTs in his legs and lungs, deep vein thrombosis, which are blood clots. Crohn's disease causes inflammation in the digestive tract, which can prevent people from absorbing nutrients, cause abdominal cramping and pain, and it can also cause joint pain and fatigue. Douglas was diagnosed with Crohn's disease in his late 20s. He went to the emergency room feeling feverish, and he actually had a grapefruit-sized abscess in his body that had ruptured. His blood had become septic, and if he hadn't caught this, he could have died. After his diagnosis, he started the process of learning to live with Crohn's disease, and that's when he discovered Chinese medicine. He had been struggling with the prescription medications his doctor provided to manage Crohn's disease, and in his search for alternative means of management, he tried out acupuncture and herbal formulas, and within a couple of weeks, he was feeling significantly better. In fact, it worked so well that he switched gears and started studying Chinese medicine himself, learning to help others find relief from a wide variety of illnesses. His Crohn's disease had been relatively controlled for years when he mysteriously developed blood clots in his legs and lungs. These clots actually did some nerve damage. His left foot is numb from clots pinching a nerve, and he has experienced some damage to his lungs. But when he first discovered these clots, he was told that if any of them dislodged, it could be fatal. He started blood thinners, and there was a critical period of 30 days when he first started medication, which he thankfully made it through. But this experience drove him to want to become a therapist. Because there's a pattern in Douglas's story of each time he faced a medical trauma, it led him to change his life course to try to help others. As someone with a chronic illness, he was interested in the intricacies of intimate relationships. Because that can be incredibly challenging for both the person who is chronically ill and their partner who may be healthy. So not only do we get to hear Douglas's story today, but he'll tell us a bit about his work both in Chinese medicine and as a sex therapist. So there's a lot in this episode that we've never covered before and realms of healthcare that we just haven't discussed yet on the podcast. So I was thrilled to have the opportunity to talk to Douglas. He did a fantastic job. Such an interesting episode. We're going to places we've never been on the podcast before. And as we are discussing sexual topics, if you are squeamish around that type of thing, be forewarned that there is some, uh, some frank sexual discussion in this episode. But I think these are really important topics because, you know, people with chronic illnesses and disability who crave intimacy deserve to have it. And sometimes frank discussions around these topics are necessary for people to have open and productive and healthy, intimate interactions with their partners. So there's so much to learn in this episode. We got a great show for you today and we'll get to it in just a couple minutes. Every once in a while, I hop on Spotify to see how this podcast is doing. And I just noticed that we are up to 17 five-star ratings on Spotify, and I'm thrilled to see that. Thank you all so much. We're catching up to the Apple Podcasts, which has 31 ratings. So if you are enjoying this podcast and you'd like to help support it and 
Give me some. Give me a reason to smile when I open my phone. Uh, go to Spotify. Go to Apple Podcasts. Leave us a five star rating. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Tell other potential listeners out there in the world what you think of the Major Pain Podcast. It is extremely helpful to help us reach new listeners. And every time I see those numbers go up or a new review come in, it really makes me happy. So I would love your support. Speaking of support, I have to thank our Patreon community who is supporting this show with monthly financial contributions. We have three tiers of support, $2 per month supporters, $7 per month patrons, and $25 per month producers. Each tier comes with special recognition and gifts, including major pain coasters and tote bags, as well as monthly bonus episodes with myself and my partner, Andy. And those are available to everyone supporting us on Patreon for as little as $2 per month. Extra special thank you to our Patreon producers, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Your continued support is phenomenal. Thank you all so much. Everyone supporting the show on Patreon at every single tier means so much to me. I love this podcast. I love producing it. And I am very hopeful to someday turn this into a career and just keep on making it forever. And every single person who signs up on Patreon is getting me one step closer to making that dream come true. And as always, there is a great way to support this podcast. If you do not have the financial resources to participate in Patreon, you can still support this podcast financially by signing up to participate in research studies and surveys through Rare Patient Voice. If you use our link, rarepatientvoice.com slash majorpainpodcast, you can sign up to participate in research studies and surveys where you will get paid for your time. All you need to have is a diagnosis of any kind, and it does not need to be a rare disease. It can be anxiety, it can be diabetes, it can be Crohn's disease, like we're discussing today. Any diagnosis at all, sign up on Rare Patient Voice, and if they have a research study or survey that matches your disease, they will reach out and ask if you are willing to participate. Your knowledge about living with your diagnosis can influence the future of scientific research. And if you use our link to sign up, rarepatientvoice.com slash majorpainpodcast, then the podcast will also be supported financially. And those add up and they are also super, super appreciated. If you have questions or comments about today's episode, please feel free to reach out. You can email me, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can leave a comment on our website on any episode, including today's episode, majorpainpodcast.com. Or you can reach out on our social media, Instagram and TikTok at Major Pain Podcast. As always, I will remind you that I am not a medical professional of any kind. I am just a content creator. So please do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting your doctor. And this week, since Douglas is a Chinese medical practitioner and sex therapist, I will also add that Douglas's opinions are his own and nothing we discuss today is intended as medical advice for our listeners. And with that, we'll jump into our fantastic episode with Douglas about his fascinating work and his two major pains, Crohn's disease and deep vein thrombosis. Douglas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to chat with you today. We were connected by uh, my partner Andy's sister, who you know through uh, some work. And from what I know of your story, it sounds really interesting. I'm really excited to talk about your work as well. And I don't really know that much about your story. So I'm excited to to learn today. Uh, But before we get into that, Douglas, let's get to know you a little bit. Tell us about yourself. 
Okay. Well, my name is Douglas Valdez. I am a Chinese medical practitioner, sex therapist, and soon to be licensed mental health, um, mental health therapist. Uh, I live in West Seattle and um, originally from LA and moved here from Chicago, but have lived kind of all over the US. I also am Mexican, so hablo español también. So, you know, I do speak Spanish. Yeah, I, I wish I spoke <laughs> Spanish. I grew up in San Diego and oh, nice. went to Mexico a lot. And Mexican food is my favorite food. Like, I'm mm -hmm. absolutely obsessed with Mexican food. So, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Damales, this time of year, perfect. Yeah. Oh, I'm, now I'm hungry. I just ate <laughs> breakfast. <laughs> well, let's get into this. So, I, you mentioned being a. Um, a Chinese medicine practitioner and sex therapist. And I, I'm, I have lots of questions about both of those things, but we're going to hold off until sure. we get a little deeper into your story. Cause I know that's kind of wrapped up in, um, in your experiences with chronic illness. So, yeah. So yeah, let's jump into it. Douglas, what is your major pain? Oh, where do I start? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I guess um, my initial diagnosis in um, 2013 was Crohn's disease. Mm. Um, having never had any kind of, childhood illnesses or anything really going wrong. But, um, I felt feverish. Apparently I had, um, an infection. I don't know how much you want to hear of the details, but an infection in my body that caused me to be feverish and really not knowing, um, what was going on. I went to the emergency room and apparently I had become septic because I had a, uh, an abscess inside my body that ruptured. Wow. And, um, that was apparently the size of a grapefruit and, um, just, you know, and, but it was all related to Crohn's disease. And I always thought, you know, I had alternating, um, and again, I don't know how much y'all want to hear this, but constipation and loose stool throughout my life. And I thought, oh, it's a bad, bad diet, you know, too much in and out or too much, you know, Jack in the box thinking that's what it was. Um, but actually it was Crohn's disease and, um, in, in and out is in the burgers, not food going in and out. <laughs> absolutely. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, I know mean, a lot of people you know. who don't live in, have never lived in California might not know much right. about in and out. Oh, true. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> animal fries are still amazing, but yes. Yes. Uh, animal fries. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that was, um, you know, that, that was the big kind of what the heck is going on with my body? Like what is happening? Yeah. I, I don't want to interrupt you, but can you tell us a bit about Crohn's disease? I mean, I, I know that it's uh, some, a gastrointestinal condition, but I don't, I don't actually know that much about it. Yeah. Crohn's disease is an autoimmune condition. So mm. it's similar to rheumatoid arthritis in that it's, um, autoimmune, but, um, and similar to that, it also affects your joints. So you have joint pain, fatigue, um, gastrointestinal issues that we talked about, loose stool, constipation, usually alternating, um, abdominal cramping, abdominal pain. You're basically not able to, um, absorb nutrients in your intestinal tract. So as you're, you're eating the food, you're not able to get the nutrients and everyone is different. So that's kind of a blanket Crohn's disease definition. But for everyone, it shows up differently. For some people, it's only abdominal pain or only loose stool, or some people can eat um, certain things and, and it's, it won't affect them. Like it won't cause them to have a flare, but some people can't eat, you know, certain things. And it's kind of dependent on the body. Really. Interesting. So is it dependent mm -hmm. on what you eat? Your body sort of like you eat the wrong thing, your body attacks itself, like inflammation of the colon prevents you from absorbing nutrients? Yeah. And it's not, yeah, it's not really necessarily the colon, but it's like along the, um, the digestive tract. So okay. like if you eat something with seeds, let's say like strawberries, which I cannot eat, 
Um, they can get into the tiny tears and stuff that are in your intestinal lining and cause an, like an infection or cause a flare um, because you can't really digest them necessarily and they get stuck in there. Like I said, everyone is different in terms of like what they can eat. But yeah, for for me, it's strawberries and broccoli as well. Really? Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you test for that? Is it a, like an endoscopy where they send a camera down there? It's an endoscopy, a colonoscopy, and also a blood test. Um, there oh. is a blood test that looks for markers, um, inflammatory markers that may show up for certain people. Um, but it can, and that can also be other things as well. Also, like certain things like severe weight loss. Um, some people will lose a lot of weight because they can't digest the nutrients they need mm. to actually um, gain weight and sustain any kind of weight. Uh, so they kind of look for certain things to kind of then send you in for for blood blood work and and endoscopy and colonoscopy and things like that. Wow, interesting. Do you have any of these uh, pain symptoms that you talked about, like the joint pain, the inflammation? I do, and actually, um, I will say that I didn't initially for probably a good four or five years, and um, I kept having. I kept going into the doctor afterwards, after maybe five years to get uh, blood work done because my mother has rheumatoid arthritis, which um, again is kind of usually, I don't want to say usually it's genetic. For some people, it's genetic. It's similar to what she has. Hers is all joint and not GI. So I was like, maybe I'm getting rheumatoid arthritis because I'm having all these joint pain. And I didn't really do a lot of a deep dive into Crohn's at that point. Um, but I do have now more than ever more joint pain um, and more... Um, I don't want to say problems with my hands, but my hands tend to like kind of my, my knuckles tend to like hurt and, and, and cramp up, you know? Yeah. Interesting. What is the treatment for Crohn's disease? Is it avoiding certain foods? Is it taking anti-inflammatories? So it's individual specific. So for some people it is taking anti-inflammatory or taking biologics or something that's going to um, basically lower your immune system. So you can, your body doesn't attack itself. Mm. Um, I chose to not go that route because when I was on traditional medication, I was doing worse than ever. Like nothing was working. I was feeling worse um, the whole time. So I had two or three surgeries um, initially, and then I slowly weaned myself off of the prescription medication. And that is my choice. I'm not recommending that for anyone. Yeah, It's just what I chose to do for my body that worked. Yeah. And this surgery was to address this grapefruit-sized abscess. Oh my gosh. The one of like six that apparently I've had. Wow. Because the, when the doctor went in, they saw all this like scar tissue that apparently I had had like hundreds in my lifetime. And you just didn't you know because you didn't know you had this disease. No, but it's funny because looking back on it, I realized I would have fevers, random fevers. And my mom even talked about it. She's like, you always had random fevers as a teenager in high school. We didn't know why. Wow. So there must have been infection somewhere in my body that was going on, but I had no idea what's well, going on. What's the feeling of, you know... I mean, I'm not sure how old you were when you had this disease, but you're grown and you find out that you have had this disease your whole life. And yeah. this process has been happening in your body that you didn't know about that has significantly impacted you as a human. And then you finally uncover it without even knowing that you needed to look for it. That sounds like a really uh, bizarre experience to go through. It is. And I think most people are diagnosed um, in their teens and early in life. So I think there's a lot of factors that go into that. I didn't really take care of myself as a teen. I was, you know, I, I so I am gay and I came out very young. So at 14, I had a fake ID, partying, doing all these things. So I think like, you know, there was a lot of that. And growing up in LA was a lot of partying. I didn't really address any of my physical symptoms. And when you're young, you don't think about it, you know? And as I got older, I'm in my forties now. And as I got older, I realized um, this isn't right. And, and I couldn't ignore the fever. I was like, literally, I was delusional. 
from the fever was so high. It was 105 <laughs> degree, like the fever. Like it was just, I had to go to the emergency room. Like, yeah, my ex-husband at the time took me. He's like, you are not normal. You're not acting like yourself. You yeah. know? And do you know about how old you were when that happened? I want to say late twenties. Late twenties. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Was there was there a sense of was it unsettling to realize there was something you didn't know about yourself at that point in life? Absolutely. And what was yes, it was very unsettling. And what was more unsettling to me was nothing against the medical field in general, but I think that a lot of people, because I was overweight, I heard from many doctors, oh, you can't have Crohn's disease because you're fat. Ugh. Fat people don't have Crohn's disease. It's only, you know, you obviously are not losing weight. Well, it doesn't show up for everyone that way. So I was doing my own research, trying to figure this out. And I wasn't getting the help I needed necessarily from traditional medical doctors at the time. That's know? deeply upsetting. That's so upsetting. Yeah. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's so upsetting. Yeah. I mean, there's, there is like, there is so much fat phobia in the medical field where people are not able to get help. Um, yeah. doctors will just say, Hey, just go lose some weight when they right. complain of anything. And it's, it's off. It's horrifying. It's so, I mean, you know, I, I I've experienced a lot of medical gaslighting myself uh, yeah. as someone with a chronic illness for, for a wide variety of reasons. And there's just so many of them. <laughs> there's so many yeah. barriers to getting care. And this is another example of something that's just not okay. Right. And, and I don't want to like necessarily think that, oh, not every doctor is that way, but it just look beyond your, your training, you know, yeah. yes, you're trained to say, oh, it could be this, but maybe it's not, maybe it's not everything you've learned. And let's look beyond that and look at the individual person in front of you yeah. and not a diagnosis, you know, absolutely not checking the boxes. You know? Absolutely. And you know, they are, doctors are trained that there are exceptions to all of these different things, but right. they seem completely unwilling to, uh, entertain the possibility that that exception might be in their office at that moment, you know, and right. that's, that's why it's taken me. So I'm still undiagnosed. I finally wow. have a good care, but that's why it's taken so long is because like, I, I, you know, I, I've learned how to talk to doctors to say, Hey, I've been down this path for years and years. We are looking for something unusual. You know, that's right. how I kind of start things at this point. Uh, yeah. Because I, w I would get into a doctor's office and like, well, we're going to test for this. Um, and th this other thing we're not even going to test for because that's unusual. I'm like, but I am the unusual, you know, like test for it. Right. Why not? Right. I've been tested for the same things over and over because doctors that that's like the, the list of things that they're taught to run down. But it's like, what's exactly. off of that list? Will anyone please look off of that list for me? And it's it hasn't right. been until recently that I've been able to find that. Wow. Yeah, it's unfortunate. In the 15 minute like medical model, let me go in and see you 15 minutes. I'm out and on to the next patient. Yeah. I feel like that is so, it's not fair to the patient. You know, not everyone is going to check all those boxes and, and it's going to be that one diagnosis. Like yeah. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, some of these things exist for practical reasons, mm -hmm. which are awful. Like there's just not mm -hmm. enough providers to, to meet with people and give one on one True. time. And that's, that's awful. But that, yeah. but the 15 minute thing is really upsetting as a patient, you know, it, and, yeah. I, I just, I don't know. I keep saying it over and over on the podcast, but I started over at University of Washington Medical Center and I've been given time and resources that that were just not available at other hospitals and oh, so wow. much more knowledge from the doctors just because it seems like, you know, a teaching hospital, um, people are willing to entertain ideas that they wouldn't entertain in other places. And it's been like, you know, most of the doctors that I've seen have been of that caliber. It's just been awesome. Wow. And I'm finally that's making amazing. progress. Um, so that's, you know, teaching hospitals. I, yeah. <laughs> that's something right. to try if you're stuck. Um, but it sounds great. like, yeah, it sounds like you've gone a different way, which I'm really excited to hear about. Uh, okay. So you've had these 
abscesses that were just kind of healing, like, I, I guess maybe bursting and healing on their own throughout your life? Yeah, inside my body and just my body was absorbing them, you know, and it was wow. showing up as like fever and, and, you know, but not anything physical that you could see on the outside, you know. So what did the surgery look like? So you, you finally find out you're having one while it's happening and you can right. have surgery to remove it, which I'm right. assuming is probably better than letting it, you know, burst on its own. And yeah. I mean, who knows what, do, do you know what type of damage that causes if it bursts on its own? Um, I don't, I mean, your body will absorb it, you know, yeah. but it's just, it's toxic. If you're septic, yeah. that is, you know, you can die. It's, it's just in your bloodstream at that point, you know? And you yeah. said you were septic when you went in for this surgery so that you were I in a, a potentially fatal situation of not having been diagnosed. Exactly. I was in a, yeah, it was very scary at the time. And, and there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of fear for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. What did that surgery look like? Um, so basically they, uh, they, they cut into me, they drained it. They pulled it, I pulled everything out, but it had to heal from the inside out. So it was like wow. seven inches deep. And I went home with that and had to pack it every day. Oh my God. And it was just, yeah, um, it was, it was painful. And I have to I have to give a shout out to my ex-husband because he was, he's the one who did it because like it was kind of on my back and I went well, up my back, but like my lower back area um on my app <laughs> so <laughs> let's just say that so i couldn't really reach it necessarily to, to do it and he was amazing so yeah. wow i'm so glad to hear that yeah yeah i mean the people that get us through chronic illness are mm. are just so i mean i i don't even have the words to say what it means no. to 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 need help like that and to have it from a loved one is just beyond important it's so important right um and then how do, so sepsis, that, that's when your blood is becoming toxic. Is that right? When you have an infection in your blood. Yeah. So right. it, the, the, whatever bacteria has gotten now into your bloodstream and it's now traveling to your heart and throughout your whole body, you know, so that needs to be um, taken care of. And they were actually going to put in a pick line, um, which is, you know, an antibiotic to deliver an antibiotic into my bloodstream. I didn't end up having to have that, but I had to go in. Because I lived near the hospital, I had to go in every day for antibiotics, IV antibiotics. It was really, it was that bad. Wow. And so if, if yeah. you hadn't caught this, you, you very likely would have died. Very likely. Yep. And, and it was the, you were like sort of in denial about your fevers, but it finally it's like, okay, I am, I have this crazy fever. I got to go to a doctor. Is that how it was actually discovered? Yeah, it, I, I didn't feel like myself. And, and when my, um, my husband was like, oh yeah, you're not acting like yourself. And I felt very like I was in a fog and just very loopy and it was the fever. It was making me um, basically delirious, you know, wow. like you can cause brain damage with fever that high in an adult for sure. Wow. Horrifying. Yeah. It was very scary. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, then you survive, you get through this thing, you come I out did. the other side with a new diagnosis. How mm -hmm. long did it take to integrate that into your self image? I mean, to be completely comfortable with it. I think it's still a journey. Yeah. You know, there's still certain things that I have to adapt to and, um, change as my as my condition changes you know and certain things happen in my body but um i want to say maybe a year year and a half where i've actually i figured out how to live with it and live mm. with um the symptoms that come up every day what does that look like for you it's tough because it's like you're you're living a new normal and it, for me it's like okay well how do i adapt to getting up early every morning because i get up and i have joint pain because i have to get up and be able to go to the restroom fully before I can leave the house because I don't want to get 
stuck somewhere where I feel like I have to use the restroom, you know, mm. not eat when I'm out having lunch with people or whatever, because I don't want to have a bowel movement in case I really have to go, um, you know, and so that that things I have to plan for before that I never had to plan for, you know, that I plan for now that I didn't have to plan for before. You tried traditional medication and it didn't work out and you've right. gone a different route. And is that what what's next on your story is like trying to find that route to go down? Um, yeah, I mean, trying to figure out the prescription medication was a long, difficult kind of task. And so when I realized that wasn't working, I thought, what else can I do? What else is out there that I can try that maybe is not as invasive, that isn't going to upset, um, upset my gut or cause more problems? And how can I figure that out? You know. And so I looked into Chinese medicine. I went in and got treated um, with Chinese medicine with acupuncture for like GI issues, for loose stool, for things like that. And it really helped. Wow. Chinese formulas and acupuncture. I thought, this is amazing. And then I thought, how can I, is this something I want to do to help people, help Spanish speaking, maybe queer people as well? And I didn't realize where it was going to take me until um, kind of living, living with it and getting treated and then learning all about it and how many things it can help and treat, you know, throughout different diagnoses. Yeah. So your first experience with acupuncture, uh, was it just right away? It's like, wow, this is actually helping in a way that the medication was not. It just sparked something immediately. The formulas. Yes. Mm -hmm. The, um, acupuncture needles, um, not, it took, it took a while. I want to say it took like one or two weeks to kind of get it. Initially I felt a little better, but for long-term care, like it, it needed to, I needed to do it regularly until my body was kind of back in there. Yeah. So the formulas I'm assuming herbs, Herbal formulas, yep. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I, I have I've done a little bit of this. Um, I did not have good luck. <laughs> okay. Uh, the first time I tried acupuncture, I loved mm. it. Uh, I was yeah. living in San Diego, and my next door neighbor, uh, well, my like around the around the back neighbor um, from the house I was living in was studying acupuncture, and she needed someone to practice on. So she practiced on me a couple times, and she was very cautious and tentative. Yeah. Yeah. But it was awesome. I was like, oh my God, what have you done? I feel great. So I went out to get acupuncture and I didn't really jive necessarily with my practitioner and felt mm -hmm. like it wasn't really helping. And he was giving me um, herbs that I, you know, you know, I'm very sensitive and I tend mm -hmm. to avoid mushrooms uh, okay. dietarily because uh, okay. sometimes I get like really nasty headaches when I eat mushrooms and I didn't want to take mushrooms and he was just like very insistent that I take these mushrooms. <laughs> yeah. So right. yeah, so I, I tried it for months and it did, I, and I kind of abandoned it. And I tried it again a couple years ago. And this time I was seeing someone who, instead of giving me herbal tinctures, sent me to like Bastyr University to get the actual herbs and cook them myself. Oh yeah. And I was going through this crazy process of like cooking, mm -hmm. um, you know, these giant bags of herbs and making like a week long thing at a time and. I, I just felt so sick the whole time. It's interesting now. No, now I'm I'm eating a uh, low histamine diet. We think that I might have um, problems digesting histamine in one way or another, and nice. um, that's helped tremendously. So now I know that like cooking something and then letting it sit in the fridge for days and drinking it over the course of days that's really bad for me. So right. it wasn't necessarily like the herbs themselves. It was the 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 hist could have been the histamine in the preparation. Right. Um, so anyway, so I, and, and that practitioner, I also did not jive with. So my impression of acupuncture is there's like a lot of really amazing potential in it. And then it, it really depends on who you're seeing 
as to how much potential you're going to yeah. get out of that. Right. I think you're, you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's, it's very specific in terms of like the practitioner looking at the, at the patient and seeing what it is like for you, you know, that wasn't working for you. So let's do one or two day formula and then come back or let's do patent pills instead of, yes, you get quicker results from the raw herbs like you were doing at home, but there are also patent pills and there are granules and there are like other things you can do mm. that might, let's, let's exhaust those things first or figure it out, you know? looking at the patient as an individual and who's sitting in front of you and really not saying, okay, well, we're going to give them a week-long formula. Well, if that week-long formula didn't work for you or it's making you worse, scrap it. Let's try something new. Yeah. Let's see what fits the puzzle, you know? And I think that's so important. So yeah, I agree with you. But, and it's so interesting because like a lot, you know, I've had so much horrible medical gaslighting in traditional medicine. And then I feel like in alternative medicine, there are, alternate forms of improper care and yeah. alternate forms of really incredible care. And it's like, there's no right answer for everyone. And there are different people practicing in every field. And right. for each individual person who is ill, trying to find the right combination of, of practitioner and practice can right. be like incredibly difficult. Yeah. And I think it's important to look at the, the, the patient is the expert of their body. Yes. So let's approach it from that and see what is fitting and what isn't fitting. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily do that. You know, it's. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my God. That's so important. But it sounds like you hit it out of the park. Your first experience, <laughs> uh, these herbs helped out right away. Um, and for people who are not familiar, can you talk us through a little bit of the process of what, what it looks like when someone comes in, you know, when you first went in and tried herbs and acupuncture? Initially, when I first went in, I um, I was a little scared. And I was like, "What? I I don't want needles in my body. What's happening?" You know, even though I have tattoos, I'm like, I still don't want to get you know <laughs> because I've seen I watched videos on like three inch deep needles into your body, and I was freaking out a little bit. So initially, it was a little pushback. Um, but once I started to get, and once I went in, and I realized that I had a really great practitioner, and again, I had it was somebody, it was a friend of a friend. And so they were also queer. They also spoke Spanish and it was a very comfortable, oh, you're my people. It is mi gente. You know, like I, I feel comfortable going mm, to you. Yeah. yeah. So that, that helped. And then, then I felt like I could really receive the treatment and really trust in what I was getting. And also they, they were like, okay, well, if it doesn't work, let me know. We'll change it up. We can do supplements. We can do, let's see what works with your body, you know, and that kind of put me on the path to want to do Chinese medicine and do it that way. How, how long is the, the distance between... Um, trying it, knowing you want to get into it, and then actually starting to get into it. Did you just kind of jump on this train right away? Did it sort of like ruminate in your mind for a few months before you actually started working towards it? Um, it, it took me a while because I didn't really, I, I didn't really realize I wanted to do that because I had gotten an MBA and I was like, okay, I'm going to be an HR director. This is what I'm going to do, and I wasn't really thinking about uh, medicine per se, but I knew I wanted to do something beyond. Um, working in an office every day in that way, I wanted to really have more connection with people. So once it really started to work, I want to say it was maybe like four years later. Wow. So you yeah. had a lot of time to kind of sit with the treatments and, and see some benefit from it. Yeah. And doing regular treatments. And, and initially I went every week, two, sometimes two times a week. And then after I can kind of space them out because I didn't have to do that anymore. My body was back in homeostasis and I was feeling a lot better. So I didn't have to do all of those heavy formulas, you know, seven days a week. Um, and I didn't have to do acupuncture two or three times a week. 
Okay, so heavy formulas, di- different concoctions of herbs that are prescribed by this practitioner yeah. saying, hey, I think, I think this is what's happening in your body and here's how we can sort of move it in the right direction. Right. And are there specific herbs that, you know, if you come in and say, hey, I have Crohn's disease, um, are there specific herbs that, that you are um, sort of directed towards? Not necessarily, because you're looking at the, at least from a Chinese medical perspective, you're looking at the person who's showing up for you. So a person who has Crohn's disease may not have a loose stool. So you're not going to give them an herb that is going to cause them to be constipated or cause, you know, to treat loose stool. So it's, it's every week, the formula should be created to the person who you're seeing for that week. So if that week you have headaches as well, you alter the formula to add something for headaches. Mm. Or if you have, you know, whatever the case is, joint pain. So you're adding something to that formula to help with that. Um, so there isn't one necessarily diagnosis. There are IBD patent pills you can take, which are just kind of generic. But I think to get the the um, the most results really is creating a formula specifically for that person. Yeah, and and that, and that can change from from time to time. And when you're yeah. creating this formula, are there like multiple herbs that can help with the same thing? And then are you using your intuition about which one is the best for this person? Yeah, you're, you're so you're seeing some herbs will do again, just going back to headaches and loose stool. So some will do headaches and loose stool. So you add those, and then when they come back, they're like, "Oh, my headache's gone." So you'll change that out, maybe, or add less of that and add something, you know something else for joint pain or something else for body aches or, or chills or whatever it is. Um, so you, yeah, you, you alter it as you're going. So you, you spend some years going down this road as a patient and what sort of uh, benefit did you see over time? Like you got, it sounds like you got to the point where you weren't taking prescription medication at all, like traditional Western medication. Yeah. I, I, I stopped taking it after my initial diagnosis, I would say, probably a year and a half of trying the prescription medication. I just thought that's not, um, nothing is, it's not really working. None of it is working. We've tried different things. The next step was to take biologics, which was like going in and getting, um, at the time going in and getting like IV medication put in you. Like, I think it was two times a week. You have to sit there and just have it injected into you. I didn't want to do that. I thought there has to be something different that I can do. Yeah. And how much uh, benefit did you see? You know, I mean, I, I don't know what it feels like to have Crohn's disease, but from you've just, you've talked about, you know, some of the worst of it, how, how much better did you get on the purely Chinese medicine regimen? I don't know if I have a percentage necessarily that I got better, but I got a lot better. I, I want to say maybe 70%. Yeah. Wow. You know, I really, it wasn't no longer, it wasn't preventing me from doing my activities of daily life, you know, so I could really do whatever I wanted to do. And I didn't feel like I had to, um, not leave the house because I was going to have an accident or, you know, have really severe joint pain um, or whatever the case was, you know, I felt like I could, I could manage it. So 70% is something that's what I would say. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and that sounds like you're at that point, you're like, I want to start doing this, you know, this, this works. Yeah. I, I want to get into this world and I want to help other people the way that I've been helped. Yeah. I saw so much improvement in myself and I thought there has to be, I know, there's people who don't want to do acupuncture and that's great. And they only want to do prescription medication. And again, everyone's treatment journey or healing journey is different, but I thought for me, I want to be able to be that resource. And then I realized there isn't a lot of Spanish speaking people um, who do acupuncture, you know, and specifically when I was going to school for acupuncture, I would get people who would come and see me who are part of the kink community, kink and queer community who were, could tell me about their, um, 
different things that would be happening for them, like say erectile dysfunction or something along those lines. And so I could do acupuncture for that or do Chinese herbs for that. And I thought, I mean, it just started to build on itself on like, okay, this is something I really want to do for my community um, in general, my, the different identities I hold. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then did you go to uh, school for it? I know that, you know, Bastyr University is a huge place here. Um, yeah. what, what, what did that path look like? Uh, so I moved to Chicago. Oh. Um, I was living in New Orleans at the time and I moved to Chicago for, for school. And I went to national university of health sciences, which is a chiropractic school that has a naturopathic program and a Chinese medicine program. Hmm. And so I thought, okay, this is, this is great. This is what I want to do. Um, and this is a great school for it. Chicago is such a big city and they have a big Chinatown. So you can really get herbs and really be immersed in, in the program. That's kind of why I chose it. Yeah. Is there, is there a cultural element to learning this practice or is it all like very strictly medicinal? If there is a cultural aspect, there's a lot of history you have to learn as well mm -hmm. um, in terms of Chinese medicine, in terms of the history of Chinese medicine. Um, there is a lot of that. So you learn that initially in the beginning that when you start the program. Yeah. But, but it's funny because recently I've, I've been studying curanderismo, which is like traditional Mayan healing and all of the points or a lot of the points that are in Chinese medicine, Mayans did it a thousand years before that. And so there's a lot of connection to Mexican culture and Chinese medicine and it's been really interesting to learn about that yeah that's fascinating so yeah. what i mean this is obviously a ridiculous question but what are the basics of chinese medicine i mean is is there like a way to boil it down into you know like what what is the goal um when you are working with a patient so I, yeah the easiest way to boil it down would be trying to get you back into homeostasis so if your body is out of balance it's trying to bring the balance back to whatever happens to be showing up so it's either deficiency or an excess of whatever we're looking at, whatever diagnosis we're looking at, and we want to bring it up. So if you think about two scales, one being higher than the other, you want to bring the scales up so they're even and parallel, then, then you're back at homeostasis where you should be. Mm. And, that, and that can be spiritual healing in terms of like meditation, um, tai chi, qigong, or herbs or acupuncture as well. How crucial is it to have a diagnosis in that situation? And it's, it's interesting because in Chinese medicine, we, yes, we take your Western diagnosis, but we, we put it aside and then we, we ask you the 10 questions. So when you come in, there are 10 questions we ask you to get a diagnosis of our own. And we do, we do pulse and we do tongue. What are you feeling right now? You know, how's your sleep? How's your urine input output? How are your bowel movements? How, you know, so are you in any pain? Um, all of these things we're asking because they're associated with like, liver chi stagnation. I don't know if you ever heard or like, you know, spleen chi deficiency. So we have our own Chinese medical diagnoses that sometimes don't correlate with Crohn's disease, you know, because it can show up differently for everyone. Yeah. And it sounds like there's just a lot of listening required and getting to know a person, getting to understand their body and probably a bit of trial and error at first to figure out which direction you need to go. It, yeah, it is a lot of listening. I would say 90% of it is listening because you want to see. And it's also like smelling, like, does a person have an odor? Does their breath smell sweet or not sweet? Because I, it was a chiropractic school, we combined like um, Western medicine as well. So we took your temperature. We, you know, listened for your heart, listened to your lungs, like listen to um, the Western, the Western medication or Western uh, style of healing and combined it with Chinese medicine, you know, but it's really getting all those, that all information down. And then really trying to figure out what is going on with you right now. 
So yes, this is your diagnosis, but right now, what can we address and bring back into homeostasis by adding or taking away? So, okay, you go off to Chicago, you learn learn all these skills, and then yep. do you open your own practice? Or you go to work at someone else's practice? Um, well, actually, um, after I graduated there, I moved here, yeah. um, which you're, was- You're also in the yeah. Seattle area. Sorry, yeah, yeah, I'm in the Seattle area, in West Seattle. Um, and so I thought I need to- so everyone that came in to see me, they always talked about stress and anxiety. And there was a big emotional component in Chinese medicine that I didn't really realize before studying it. You know, you do talk about stress and anxiety in different uh, levels in Chinese medicine, but I didn't really put it together. But I noticed that a lot of my patients would come in and tell me about past traumas, tell me about the traumas they're dealing with. And we also had a, a, a PTSD clinic for military vets. So they would come in with PTSD and we talk about different conditions and diagnoses they had. So I thought I need to combine this with mm. mental health, you know, and then working with people in the kink community, I wanted to combine it with sex therapy because mm. sex therapy and mental health is so important, especially from the lens of a person with invisible disabilities who may not always want to show up and be sexual because of that, you know, and I hear people talking about with their partners, oh, my partner doesn't want to have sex with me. Oh, but he has a diagnosis of X, Y, Z. Well, if you're in pain and you're dealing with like, you know, you're running from the bear because you're in pain and you're trying to survive, you know, getting off is not going to be the first thing you think about, you know? Sure. <laughs> so, so it's like, okay, let's have conversations about that. So that's to say that brought me to Seattle and made me choose Antioch where I go to school, mm. where I just graduated from actually. Um this week and um, which is very exciting. And I, I'm looking forward to opening a practice here in Seattle. Awesome. That's so cool. Yeah. yeah and that th this is a really interesting topic, you know, becoming a, a, a sex therapist as well. Um, and the intersection of chronic illness and, and intimacy, I feel like is something that is not talked about enough. You just, you touched on a couple of things briefly there of, you know, of yeah. having something invisible going on where maybe you're in pain Maybe your body isn't functioning the way it used to. And I know I, I, I've lived this personally of, um, you know, like being intimate is a, a fundamental part of being human. And there can be some really complicated feelings around what your body is doing that yeah. is maybe new or different or out of your control. Um, that is not something that you want someone else to see while you're naked, while you're being right. intimate, you know? Um, right. And that can be that can be, lead to a whole slew of challenges. And that's just thinking about it from the lens of the person who's, you know, has the disability. Yeah. Thinking about it from the partner's lens. Oh, my partner doesn't want to have sex with me. They don't want to touch me. What's wrong with me. So really being able to have a conversation around, it's not about you as a partner. It's that your, your partner's body who is sick is changing and adapting. And they're trying to figure out who they are in this body. And, you know, how can you best, best support them in that journey. You know, it's not about you and also how to be intimate in other ways. So if you're having, you know, I don't know how much we can share on your podcast or whatever. Anything you want. Okay. Absolutely anything. Yeah. Okay. I mean, thinking about it from a sex therapy perspective. So if someone's having, let's say, you know, um, loose stool constantly, that's not very sexy. Mm. And if you're going to have penetrative sex, you're not going to want to do that. Right. So, but if you feel like up to it and you want to fool around with your partner, why can't you do watch porn together and do mutual masturbation and like find new ways to be intimate as your body adapts, which yeah. can be exciting for both partners, you know, and not necessarily feel, feel like, Oh, I, I feel less than because I can't have penetrative sex. 
well, let's get you a flashlight or let's get you something cool and like play around that way and try to explore each other's bodies. But communication is the key to that, I think. Yeah. I mean, and with, with any chronic illness or disability, creativity is key, you know, being yep. willing to think outside of what you uh, expect or have been taught to expect and look at the, like the, the vast array of possibilities that you've never even explored um, with or without this, this chronic illness or disability. And right. yeah, I mean, that, it sounds like that's kind of what you're encouraging people to do is to, you know, you can try new things um, right? At, at any age. At any age, exactly. And really, you know, you're changing so much and your body's adapting. Why wouldn't your intimacy connection do the same? And I think a lot of relationships maybe can break up or you can lose that interest and eventually separate because one or the other person takes it personally when it's like, well, let's stand back and figure out what exactly is happening in that person's body. You love them. You've been intimate with them before and it's been great. So now their body's adapting. Let's explore. Like what have you been wanting to try? Who better than with your partner that you've done all these great things with before to be able to enjoy each other's bodies, you know? And I think there's um, something called the wheel of consent, which is amazing. And it's kind of, I've adapted it on my own where it's like, you ask your partner, what would you like me to do to you for three minutes? What would feel good to you right now for three minutes, you know, and periodically have those conversations, you know, and then go back and forth, you know, like what, what do you want in this moment so we can connect and be intimate, but also be able to adapt, you know, and it's not just the, okay, we're having penetrative sex. So here we're going to go have dinner. Okay. We're going to go do these things. Not that it's boring because it's fun, but also trying new things. Yeah, totally. And it's interesting because there's a scale of, of this that, extends into relationships with people who do not have health challenges of, you know, like I'm too tired. I don't want to have sex right now because I'm too tired. Um, And learning to respect your partner's physical needs that maybe supersede your um, sexual desires in that moment. Um, And then if you get into something like, okay, now my body is not functioning. uh, You know, maybe, maybe I'm too tired moves into, myalgic encephalomyelitis territory, chronic fatigue syndrome of like, I physically do not have the strength. Um, And then it's, you know, there can be a mismatch of energy or of interest based off of someone's physical ability level. Um, And I feel like similar skills will help um, in both situations of like learning to listen and understand what your partner needs and then find ways to compromise and work together. Um, so, I mean, it seems like something that people outside of the chronic illness and disability community could also really benefit from. I agree. I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to perform sexually with our partners, you know, and sometimes for a lot of people, it could be, it can be, you know, I hate to say it, but it can be a chore because you are exhausted. Maybe you've had a long day, but why not have a conversation with your partner and be like, you know what? I've had a really freaking long day but I bought you this amazing toy. Go try it out, watch some porn, and then come back and tell me about it tomorrow. I'm going to go to bed, but I want to hear all about it. I want to hear about what you did, you know, and like still being a part of it and still being like, you know, connected to them in that way and and having the conversation. But how often do partners not talk about mutual masturbation or masturbation in general? Yeah, You know, you don't really have those conversations. We all do it. Let's, you know, and it's okay. Enjoy your body, but figure out how to connect with your partner even when you're not physically present in that moment, you're still part of their intimate journey, you know, their sexual journey. Yeah, I love that. And we have this ridiculous um, idea in this culture of you can only 
uh, be sexually active with me. You can't even right. do it by yourself, let alone, right. you know, another partner. Um, right. it, I can be your only source of sexual pleasure. Like that is not true. You know, don't do right. that. <laughs> right. Take this toy right. in the other room without me, please. You know, like right. um, I, I, that's really important. I think, I think that that's in, in a lot of circles that's considered like taboo, but I feel like that is a, an important pathway towards leading a fulfilling sexual life is not getting everything from one person, not necessarily meaning that you're, you know, polyamorous, although I think that's great too, but you know, for, yeah. if that's good for you, that's great. Um, yeah. But like for monogamous relationships, you still don't have to get everything from one person. Right. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, I'm not poly, I'm, I'm monogamous, but I love the idea of just doing what feels right for you and your body and your partners and just have a conversation. And initially it's a little difficult to really talk about these things, but really, you know, you've, I mean, you've already been in your partner one way or another. So how much more intimate can you be? You can have a conversation. Yeah. You know, you can talk about like mutual masturbation or toys or whatever. That That's the easy part, in my opinion, you know, for me. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so did, where do you study to be a sex therapist? Um, you know, we you talked about studying Chinese medicine in Chicago. And now you mentioned just graduating from Antioch. Um, yeah. Is that something they teach at Antioch University? There is the sex therapy certificate for mental health therapists and the mm -hmm. sex educator. So I'm doing, I just finished a sex therapist. I'm doing sex educator now as well. Um, and yeah, it's basically having those conversations, uh, being able to learn how to have those conversations with in the individuals and in relationship as well. So, or, you know, partner or partners, how to talk about that, how to have those conversations and having a space in mental health as a therapist to support your clients and patients. Yeah. That's so cool. Once you got into homeostasis, has your health changed? Have you had uh, other health challenges or, or were you able to kind of get into homeostasis and stay there? For Crohn's, for the most part, I don't have tons of flares. Um, but after moving here during the pandemic, I actually had a big, um, bigger than Crohn's uh, medical condition. We talked about this a little bit, but I um, ended up having DVTs, which are deep vein thrombosis in my legs mm. and in my lungs. Um, pulmonary embolism. Basically, I had two big blood clots in my lungs and three in my left leg Wow! in July of 2020 when I was here. Um, and that was, that was the scariest thing beyond Crohn's, beyond anything else. Like I'm still dealing with some of that because it did do some nerve damage and some damage to my lungs. So I'm still healing from that. Wow. How yeah. does that happen? Um, so they, it's, it can be genetic. It can be something that there can be markers in your blood where your blood is clotting too much. But for me, there was nothing related to that. Like I had no symptoms. I didn't travel. Like I drove here from Chicago and it was 30 hours, but that had been like eight months before the doctor said it wasn't that they weren't really sure why I was, I had so many clots um, in my blood. So they put me on blood thinners and I'm, I am taking prescription medication for that um, to keep my blood thin. So it doesn't clot. Wow. Uh, but there have been complications from that, which is just um, uncomfortable. And it's been the roughest part of my healing journey thus far, I will say. Wow. That sounds awful. I mean, and so are you just living with, the, you're living with these clots in your lungs um, and do you still have these clots in your legs as well? I do. And I mean, hopefully my body will absorb them, you know, the, with my blood being so thin, hopefully my body will eventually absorb them. But like my left foot is pretty numb from that because of the nerve damage from the clots that were pinching a nerve. 
Um, and also I lose my breath a lot. So I'm like, I can, um, I can talk pretty well, but sometimes if I'm talking too much or I'm talking a lot, like I'll lose the oxygen in my lungs and I have to breathe kind of a little, a little rougher, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. So, and you, there's no explanation as to why this started. That must be kind of terrifying to, you know, th this is the second time that your body has surprised you with something health related that you don't really have. A, there's no reason. It's just happened. Yeah. Yeah, it's this was this what I have to say was terrifying. Yes, before it was I mean maybe it's because I'm so removed from my initial diagnosis of Crohn's, but this was scary. The doctor said basically the next 30 days are the once I went to the emergency room and they said, you know, you can die the most dangerous time is the next 30 days. Wow. You could fall asleep and not wake up because the blood clots could become dislodged and it's just terrifying. And I didn't really know anyone here. Um so it was very isolating and it was just um the scariest part of of yeah, of that. I can't even imagine. I, I once, uh, when I was seeing a naturopath, he thought that I might have a blood clot in my leg mm -hmm. and sent me to get a, an ultrasound. Yeah. And he was terrified. He was panicking. He's like, oh, well, this could be really dangerous. And it, it wasn't. I didn't even have it. But just wow, that, like, right. two hours <laughs> of yeah. thinking that I might have had a blood clot and, like, if it dislodges, it can be fatal. Yeah. Um, like that, just that thought for those two hours was... I mean, really difficult to bear. I can't imagine spending a month in that state of like yeah. being in a critical state with that. How did you get through that? Um, it was it was very difficult. I had a partner at the time. I moved here for a guy. You know, anyway, that's another whole other story. Um, <laughs> did not work out, and he ended up being a real asshole. So I'll just say that. And um, so I didn't have the support I needed, but mm. it really so there was a lot of tears. It was a lot of just trying to make a day to day, trying to make it to the next day and trying to make it to the next day and really yeah. trying to figure that out, you know? And that's kind of what led me to also wanting to do sex therapy and therapy in general, because it was like, I need to, this is so scary being in this condition where you, you, you've lived in this body for so long and all of a sudden it's the one thing you can't count on. You don't know if you're going to wake up the next day and how can you work with people to give them the support maybe and being an ally for them to be able to get through the dip, most difficult parts and their partners, you know, how to be able to build communication between the two of them. So, yeah. So every time you go through a health crisis, it inspires you to learn how to help other people better. That's really, yeah. that's really quite lovely. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. I just feel like I can't be the only one. And, and I know how isolating it was for me. And I don't want other people to have to go through that. I know we all go through certain things, Yeah. but to be like, crap, I heard this on your po your podcast the other day. I'm not the only one who went through that. You know, like someone who's listening to your podcast can be feel like, okay, maybe this person went through it and they made it. They're on the other side now. Yeah. And they're, you know, really trying to help their body and feel better. Yeah, absolutely. So you are on blood thinners. You're hoping that these clots will absorb at some point. It sounds like you're out of the critical period where it's not like it's a safe thing to have, but it's... right. Uh, you know, you're, you're learning to manage it and you're still kind of in the midst of this. You know, you have Crohn's disease, you have these blood clots. Is there any worry that there is a connection or that there is an underlying condition that you haven't discovered that has caused uh, this second health crisis to happen? There isn't necessarily a worry that there's another condition under there. I, I really, that connects the two. I don't see how they could necessarily, hmm. just from what I know of anatomy and, and I mean, obviously I don't know everything, but um no, I'm just really trying to make the best of it, of what I have. You know, yeah. I think that I always think about there's so many people who are worse off than I am, mm. you know, and how can I 
make every day great, you know, and, and do what I want to do and fuck everyone and fuck the, like in terms of like judgment and things like that. I want to study what I want to study. I want to do what I want to do. And life is short. And that's one big thing I learned about these conditions. Absolutely. And I, I totally agree. And I'm, I, I feel like my life has been this course of like trying to let go of what society thinks I should be and figure out what, who am I? Who do I want to be? What do I want to do? And the further I lean in that direction, the happier I am. And right. isn't the goal just to be happy? You know, right. like I, I think when I was younger, my goal was to fit in and it right. was miserable because I never did. Right. And right. once I let go of that and just worked on, okay, let's just be happy. And I, right. I just got so lucky finding people to go on that journey with me. And, you know, my partner is just the most incredible person that I, yeah. I can't believe that we found each other. You know, we were talking about this last night. It's like, who else would, would let me be this weird <laughs> and love <laughs> me amazing. anyway? Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, I'm, I feel so lucky, but, yeah. and it's, it's like the more authentically you live, the, the more you attract authentic joy to yourself. I agree with that. And I think also knowing what happiness looks like, it's different for everyone else. You know, like on Instagram, we see happiness is all these posts and people on the beach and whatever, <laughs> but you know, happiness it's, could be, you know, going to get a latte at Starbucks and the app, they actually have the soy milk you wanted or whatever it is, yeah. you know, that type of happiness enjoying. Yeah, totally. And Instagram, that that's such an interesting point. Like social media in general when you see people being happy online and you feel this jealousy of like, oh, I want to be living that life, that is manufactured, you know? Like right. what you are seeing online is manufactured. That is not right. representative of that person's life. That is a, a moment, right. a curated moment that they chose that they are showing you oftentimes because they want you to be jealous. So- Right, <laughs> curated, that's a great word for it, absolutely. Yeah, uh, so I feel like I have a, a good sense of the shape of of this piece of your journey. Um, yeah. I'm curious to ask you a few more questions about your work. So you, you sure. want to, you, you mentioned like starting this practice that's sort of integrating all of these things that you're interested in and, and representing a underserved community. I'm curious, you know, what does it look like when someone comes in to work with you? Um, is there like an intake process or, or what's it like to get started in um, both, both in Chinese medicine and in sex therapy? Um, yeah, so there is uh, definitely an intake process and it's initially, so the first year I'll just be doing mental health um, while I'm in Seattle here. Um, and then I'll incorporate Chinese medicine in October of uh, 2023. But initially I'm just going to be doing therapy. So talking about people, meeting them where they are and really trying to be present. My philosophy and my theories I use for mental health are person-centered therapy, the humanistic approach. So really trying to allow the client to guide the journey. And I'm there to kind of support and ask questions and maybe push a little bit, but really just trying to be an ally for them in, in their journey, mental health journey, you know? And then in terms of sex therapy, really talking about um, having conversations about invisible disabilities and disability in sex therapy uh, and really giving them the tools to be able to talk to their partners about um, what's going on in their bodies and their partners being able to communicate with them as well. Yeah, that's so awesome. What's happening in October 2023 that that will be the point when you start Chinese medicine? Um, I'm hoping to get a brick and mortar location. So right now I'm just doing telehealth. So I can't really needle, obviously, on Zoom. Yeah. But <laughs> the goal is to kind of have an actual physical practice. And it may be in Port Townsend, Washington. I'm mm. not really sure yet. It's kind of where I'm looking to maybe move up there. So we'll see. That's awesome. Yeah. I 
I wish you all the best in that. I, I it sounds Thank like you. really, really valuable work that can really help people live happier lives, and that's that's so important. And I love that it's all come from your journey of needing help um, for these various moments in your life for, for you know yeah. living through something that really made you see hey there's a there's a hole that maybe i can fill of trying to yeah. help people to to live their their better best lives or at least better you know this idea of living your best life it's like no one knows what that is but you can at least try right. to move towards a better version of your life or a happier yeah. version and i mean i even the word better feels wrong it's just like yeah <laughs> let's just try to be happy let's just move in a move in a good direction um, yeah whatever that looks like for you for sure yeah. yeah so for anyone out there listening who is interested in getting involved in chinese medicine or sex therapy as a patient across you know we have listeners from across the world how how do you get into that as a patient what do you look for in a practitioner let's start with chinese medicine because this has been i've mentioned this this is where i've struggled finding right. the right practitioner for me. What do you what do you look for? How would you recommend someone look for somebody who's not in your area? I would look for, I mean, initially, I think you're not really going to know until you see them in person. So I would say go to the first um to the first session and listen to see if they are giving you a diagnosis or if they're actually listening to all your symptoms. Are mm -hmm. they asking you the 10 questions that we all should be asking in Chinese medicine to start off the the treatment protocol, you know, or to figure out a diagnosis, are they taking your, your six pulses? Cause there's six in Chinese medicine, looking at your tongue. Um, and are they really listening to you? You know, today I'm showing up with these, this, this, this is going on. How, um, how are they listening and are receptive to what you're saying? Or are they just kind of initially saying, okay, yes, I know you have a headache. Okay. Yes, I know. And are they really kind of not being present in the treatment planning? What about um, like training or, background certifications is there anything that uh that is important to look for absolutely so yes a, they should go to they should have gone to a uh a chinese medicine school so traditional chinese medicine oriental medicine as well as what it's called because it, it involves korean and japanese but they should have either a master's degree or a doctorate and they should be nccaom certified um in any state besides california which is uh, the cale certification which is different um, so each, what, as long as they have those licensure and insurance, you should be fine. But beyond that, definitely look for the vibe. And if they're listening to you and really being part of the treatment journey, they're, they're, they're supporting you and not really telling you, I think, which is important, you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I like what you're saying a lot about, are they diagnosing you on the spot or are they listening to you? Because uh, some, some language that I've noticed as a red flag is, Oh, I know exactly what's wrong with you and I can I can fix it and I'm the only person who's going to know how to do that. Like right. that's a red flag. Yes. But somebody who says something along the lines of, "Okay, well I have an idea of maybe where to start. I don't know if this is going to be um helpful or not, but I'm I'm absolutely willing to try." That's right. that's something that I like across the board from medical practitioners, you know, including western medicine. Right. Um you know, when when people tell me like I'm not sure, but let's try. And if that right. doesn't work, we'll keep trying. I feel like, right. like that humility and the recognition of the reality that each person's body is different and to just dive in and nail it on the first try is exceedingly rare. <laughs> right. It's very difficult. And in Chinese medicine, that's not what we're looking for. You know, like bodies change from week to week. Pulses change from hour to hour. I mean, it's like 
you know, if you're really going in and saying, yes, I know what's wrong with you. I'm going to fix you in one treatment. That's not, that's not how it works. Yeah. And it really, you know, to get you back in homeostasis, it takes time depending how long you've lived the condition and, and, and what's going on in your body. Yeah. And I, I'm assuming the, the prescribed regimen is going to be different for each person. I think you mentioned I, acupuncture twice a week and herbs four times a week when you started and it slowed down over time. Is that right. sort of uh, is that sort of the norm or something around that area of like we'll start maybe once or twice a week and then slow it down as you as you reach homeostasis? I would say yes, you know, and I think it, it just depends again on the diagnosis and the severity of the condition. Um, but I would say yes, probably twice a week, maybe maybe more for acupuncture. Um, and the formulas usually you get a seven day and they want to see you again in a week. Yeah, um, yeah. And then what about sex therapy if you're someone who is looking for that especially if you're someone where one or both partners are disabled or chronically ill how do you yeah. find someone to talk you through that again i would say it's a vibe but initially i would say you can start on like a psychology today and look up um, people in your area you put in your zip code you can find someone who's trained in sex therapy mm. i will say um look for kink friendly people. If you are part of the kink community in terms of like BDSM, things like that, look and see who they are. Go on psychology today, then look at their website and see who they help and what they, who, who they've worked with before. And if they are allies of, you know, whatever community or whatever identities you hold, um, that's important. Mm. If you speak another language and they happen to speak that language, it's obviously better. You can probably communicate better with them. Um, I think any of that, would work really well. And also when you go in your first session, you're basically interviewing them as like, they're interviewing you. Like you're going to do a 15 minute consultation, but look at how they're looking at you. Are they making eye contact? Are they, you're seeing a sex therapist and you talk about fisting, <laughs> just to say, you know, if you talk about fisting and they cringe, maybe that's not the right person for you, mm -hmm. you know, and let's find someone who can actually not feel that way and say, okay, I understand you're into this. Let's talk about that. Why, why are you, you know, why is it important for you to talk about a drink therapy? How, how can I help you? You know? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. What sort of uh, conditions would you recommend Chinese medicine for? And is it just like, for, is it an across the board type of thing? Like no matter what ails you, Chinese medicine can be beneficial or are there like certain realms of diagnoses that you think are, it can be the most valuable for? I wouldn't say it. Well, I would say for the most part, Chinese medicine can really help with a majority of conditions. Mm. Even when you're pregnant, turning the baby, if the baby's not you know correct, producing more milk for lactation to um, rheumatoid arthritis or Crohn's disease. With cancer, I would not go to a Chinese medical practitioner to try and quote unquote cure you. But I would go if you have like pain or if you feel like, you know, um, you're having GI issues related to the medication you're taking or chemotherapy. Talk with your medical doctor first, but I think that that can help with the um, things that may come up when you're being treated for some another condition. But across the board, I think Chinese medicine can help so many people with so many different conditions. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned for your um, current health issues that you're dealing with, you are you know taking traditional Western medication. You are. It sounds like you have this balance in your life um, yeah. between the two. Um, and I, you know, I think there's a lot of, of wisdom in all areas of life to be found, yeah. you know, there can be really incredible things in Western medicine, you know, right. and, and there can be frustrating things across the board. 
So finding the yeah. individualized balance for each person that works for them, I think is really important. What, what is your balance now? Like how often are you seeing a Western medicine doctor and how often are you just leaning solely on Chinese medicine? And I would say I'm seeing, well, I'm seeing a Western doctor specifically for the um, blood clots just twice a year, you know, so far wow. since, yeah. I mean, it's just been just management mainly um, for medication and just checking me out, making sure everything's okay. Um, as far as Chinese medicine, because of COVID, I haven't really gone in to be needled at all. Um, but I do order my own herbs and I do a lot of meditation. I do some Tai Chi at home just to kind of calm my nervous system. And so usually if you have high anxiety or, or stress, it can cause a flare. So mm. I really try and manage that with, um, with usually guided meditation. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I, I've, I've learned a ton today. I really, what a cool opportunity to get to pick your brain a little bit. And, and learn yeah, about a lot. I mean, <laughs> there's yeah. like at least like a great four, four different things in here that I know almost nothing about that, that you've really educated me on, which is so cool. I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to share this with, with our listeners as well. Um, I've, I have one last question for you. So if you could sure. go back in time and talk to yourself before you had Crohn's disease, um, yeah. or maybe right, right when you were first diagnosed, you know, you've learned a lot since then. If you could share one piece of information with your younger self about how to weather these sort of medical storms um, and integrate it into yourself, what what piece of information would you impart? Wow, um, that's that's hard. I think I would tell myself, "You're stronger than you think, and this is not going to last forever. Mm. Your body will adapt. You will adapt to living." with whatever symptoms come up, you know, sometimes daily, sometimes weekly, but you have, yeah, you're stronger than you think, I would say. Yeah. And that adaptation piece is so important. You know, when you first get sick, it's often feels like it's going to be forever. Yeah. And once you live through a few things, you start to realize that nothing is forever. Everything is going to come and go. You know, they talk about right. our bodies. Uh, you, you replace cells in your body and every seven years, You've replaced right. your entire body. <laughs> like, oh, your cells are, have all been new. So, like, if you go back eight years ago, none of those yeah. cells will still exist in your body now, right? Is that right? Yeah. So, that's an interesting thing to think about is like, you are always changing and, you know, you, you maintain memory and a connection to who you once were, but you, each day, you are moving towards becoming a different person than you used to be. And that can right. go for your health as well. And that's why making just the tiniest bit of progress every day can really add up. Yeah. And when we're younger and we're impatient, we're like, I want one pill. I want to take it once and I want right. to be better. And if you can't right. provide that, then you're a failure doctor. But that's, right. just, that's not how it works. And I mean, you know, only in Star Trek four, that one scene. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's not how life works in general, for sure. Yeah. Totally. So learn, yeah. learning that lesson is really difficult, and it is. You can. It's interesting. Like you can tell someone, "Hey, this is not going to last forever," or "This is going to change," or "You will adapt." And it's really difficult to internalize that without living through it. But maybe right. if if your yeah. future self came back in time and said it to you, maybe you'd get the message. You know. <laughs> right. It's true. I think, and I think it's hard because you're living in that body right now that's changing. And so everything you've known for the, however many years you were quote unquote healthy, you know, now your body's completely a different person. You're now you're 
feeling pain and feeling anxiety and stress and whatever else is showing up you physically. Now you're like, crap, who the, who the frick am I now? Yeah. Like, who is this person in this new body that I knew my, I could count on my body. Now I can't. So it's hard to hear you're stronger than you think, you know, just know that in the back of your mind and you'll get there eventually, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Douglas, is there anything you'd like to plug? Please tell us anything at all, social media, your practice, sure. any, any direction you'd like to steer our listeners towards. Um, yeah, if you want to check out kind of my website and, um, you can follow me on Instagram, actually it's curativo underscore health and curativo C U R A T I V O underscore health on Instagram or curativohealth.com is my website. Um, I will be releasing a book in February. Oh, wow. Um, that kind of chronicles a little bit of my healing journey, but also my divorce and kind of healing a broken heart. So mm. it's pretty interesting. And a, there's a lot of uh, fun facts in there and a good, how I kind of got through that as well. Where did you find time to write a book inside of all of this that we just talked about? Oh my goodness. It's been, uh, yeah, it's been quite the, uh, the few years. <laughs> wow. Incredible. Um, well, I really, I'm just so impressed with what you're doing and you've, um, you've reignited my interest in, in Chinese medicine. Cause I was so interested in it before and then just didn't yeah. have the best experiences and walked away. But I've had so many bad experiences with Western doctors and I keep going back. So, <laughs> and now yeah. I'm having great experiences, you know, it just, oh, good. it's all about finding the right person. And yeah. I, I, I tell people all the time, you know, don't never, never give up on your yeah. health, never give up on, trying to find the right person to help you. Um, right. And I, I know there's like aspects to this of, you know, cost and oftentimes, uh, you know, naturopathic care or Chinese medicine will not be covered by insurance and that can make it right. kind of impossible to access. Um, but there, there's just so many things out there to try. And if you get creative and keep, keep plugging away, keep trying, you never know what's yeah. going to work. And I'm right. just so excited to continually share new ideas, different ideas, um, everything I can on this podcast that has worked for anybody. And hearing how well this has worked for you is really inspiring and seeing how it completely reshaped your life, how you just, not only did it work for you, but it became what you do because it worked yeah. so well that you wanted to share that with other people. And that's a really powerful message of what's possible with this type of healing and not even to mention your work as a, a sex therapist, which is so, so important and so cool that you found that, uh, that work to do as yeah. well. So yeah. what an awesome Thank conversation. You. I just really appreciate uh, everything you've shared with us being so open and um, so giving with your time and with your story. So thank you so Absolutely. much for coming on the show. Sure. Can I share something with your listeners as well? Just really quickly. Absolutely. You know, yeah. I just want to say, you know, if you're going through something physically and there's a lot going on, just know that you're not alone. And a lot of us are suffering along there with you. We don't see you, but we are with you on the journey, you know, and we're, we're trying to get there. So just remember to reach out to people um, to help when, you know, in your community, your support system, wherever it is. I think it's important. Yeah. I love it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Douglas. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of major pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. 
Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Brooke Walters-Schmidt, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Danielle Signorelli, Alexandria Henderson, and Justin Minnick. And our $25 per month producers, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash majorpain podcast.